Welcome to Everyday Martial Artist, a weekly podcast where you'll join me, Brian Doucet, as I interview a different martial artist each episode and hear their story. Some guests you may have heard of and some you probably haven't. Be sure to subscribe where all your favorite podcasts are available. Also visit our website at everydaymartialartist.com. If you're listening for a specific interview, I sure hope you'll stay and check out the other episodes. A very special thank you to Topher Williams for our custom theme music. And now, the newest episode of Everyday Martial Artist. Everyday Martial Artist is brought to you by KOonline.com for all your martial arts needs. Sparring and safety gear, rank belts, uniforms, weapons, patches, and more. Wholesale supplies made by martial artists for martial artists. Visit us today at KO-Online.com. Hello and welcome to Everyday Martial Artist. I'm your host, Brian Doucette. And as we do every Thursday, we're joined by a brand new guest talking about their life and their journey throughout the world of martial arts. My guest today is an internationally respected designer, photographer, educator, and martial arts master. He studied Eastern philosophy, healing arts, and combatives for more than 45 years. He's the author of over a dozen books, including the over 1,100-page Hapkido, the almost 900-page Taekwondo, and a unique series of general martial arts books that provide an in-depth look at the core concepts and techniques shared by a broad range of martial arts. Please welcome to the show today, Mr. Mark Tedeschi. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing great. I'm really, really happy to be here. Good. How we like to start it off with, with all my guests, I want to go back to the beginning and find out what was that first spark? What led to that first interest in the martial arts for you? Well, that's going back a long way. You know, <laughs> it's, it's hard to put a finger on, but as long as I can remember, I think perhaps I was born with a innate attraction to combative arts that got fed along the way by, you know, when I was young, by popular culture. My grandfather taught me to box when I was in grade school, and I used to love watching. In those days, boxing was on television. Mm-hmm. I used to like to watch that. I used to love watching Muhammad Ali, and I would always uh, I much admired his styles and uh, movement, the way he fought and try to emulate that. In high school, uh, during the winter, we all, you know, we learned to wrestle. We had to wrestle in gym class. Oh, okay. Somewhere along the line, my, I think my parents bought me a karate book. And uh, other than that, the other thing I think that was probably sparked me was back in the very early 70s, there was a show on television called Kung Fu, yep. which was about this, um, it was about a Shaolin monk who basically ends, I forget why he ends up in America, but he wanders throughout the, the West in the 1800s from town to town. And uh, each episode, he basically walks into some town where there's, you know, he gets embroiled in some form of mayhem in which he, you know, ha- handles himself or, you know, exhibits martial arts at some point. Right. And, uh, but he does it in a way that's, uh, you know, he's very calm uh, and dispassionate. And I think, you know, uh, growing up to someone like myself, who was none of those things, you know, <laughs> probably yeah. pretty combative and uh, personality and not emotionally uh, controlled. Something like that seemed the idea that you could study this, you know, something like a martial arts or mm-hmm. life discipline and come out of that uh, with some type of emotional control and calmness and whatever. It seemed like a very attractive thing to me at the time. Okay. But I didn't actually have the opportunity to uh, study Eastern martial arts until I went away to college at uh, RIT, Rochester, New York. And at the university, there was, a, I don't remember if it was a gym class or club sport or whatever, but you could enroll in karate as a class. And the class happened to be, uh, it was, was Ishinru karate. Ah, okay. And the uh, instructor was a, 
a young fellow who had just re- seemed young to me then. I don't know. I'm not sure how young he was, but uh, he had just returned from uh, recently returned from Okinawa where he'd studied with the, the founder, who I think was Tatsu Shimbaku, can't remember, but his name is Joseph Jennings, and he was a great teacher. I think he later on went, uh, went on to become a, um, one of the more prominent uh, Eastern Room masters in the United States and founded uh, Panther Productions, which produced a lot of uh, video content, uh, martial arts stuff during the, I think, 80s and 90s. Oh, yeah. It might still be around, I'm not sure. But uh, that's where it sort of got started. And um, he used to... He gave us all a little booklet that was uh, sort of stuff that we were doing, like forms and um, techniques and things like that, just a bunch of paper stapled together. And um, back when I was in college, I had to work full time to put myself through school. But I, I, I had a job which was very fortunate. I was a night security guard, which meant, you know, you'd, you'd do a round for maybe five minutes of every hour, and then you'd have the rest of the time to yourself. And this was graveyard shift. So. Nice. Yeah, yeah. So I would use that to get a lot of my schoolwork done. And I would also, you know, practice the martial arts because you have many hours of nothing to do. Mm-hmm. So I would set up stuff or work on forms, things like that. My primary in the 1980s, my primary teacher, the most influential teachers I had were who had started in the mid, the mid 80s would be uh, Merrill Jung, the well-known Taekwondo Hapkido master in the San Francisco Bay Area. And then uh, later on, also with uh, Professor Wally J. Oh, cool. Small Circle of Jiu-Jitsu, who's one of the, I would consider probably one of the major innovators in the 20th century. Yeah. And they, they had a tremendous influence on, I was with them for decades. And by that point, I was training seven days a week with Master Jung. And uh, and then uh, a couple of days a week with Professor J in the 1990s. Wow. So, yeah, the, the bug bit me, I guess. Huh? Okay. Well, I, just, I want to back up a little first go to the, the college and the Ishinru karate. First of all, how long did you study that style? And did you attain any rank in that? No, I, I didn't. I think I studied maybe a year, so not really that long. Okay. And I didn't attain any rank. I couldn't, I couldn't afford to. <laughs> <laughs> I, my budget was very – back in those days, I, and it wasn't much. I think it cost like 20 bucks or something like that, you know, to take a, a test for um, various colored belts. But really, I, I didn't have money, and I wasn't that interested. And there was – there were, I think, one or two other people in the class who had been there for years and were still wearing white belts. Oh, wow. And um, I remember – because they, they just didn't care, mm-hmm. you know. And I thought, oh, well, that's sort of interesting. Okay, I'm good with that. You know, <laughs> I don't okay. have to have a belt, but I like doing it. That's the important so my, thing. <laughs> my exposure there was fairly brief compared okay. to what, you know, happened later on. Right. So was there anything else while you were in college or nothing else till after college for martial arts? Um, not till after college. Okay. Um, okay. I, I was involved in a lot of sports in high school mm-hmm. and I was involved in collegiate sports. And that was pretty demanding in terms of time. In most collegiate sports, you're doing, you know, two sessions a day, and then you're trying to keep up with your academics at the same time. And right. it's, it's really difficult, not impossible. Okay. So what collegiate sport did you do? I was just curious. Uh, tennis. 
Oh, awesome. I played soccer and tennis in high school and, and then uh, just tennis in college. Okay. I love tennis. That's that's when I when I was in school, they, we did not have a boys team. And that's probably the, the sport. Uh-huh. We didn't have a boys tennis team or a boys volleyball team. Those are the two sports I probably would have played. I watched my where, first. Where did you go to college? College was at, um, more, uh, back then it was called Moorhead State University. Now it's Minnesota State University, Moorhead in Moorhead, Minnesota. That, yeah. 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 That was actually where I had my first experience with Taekwondo was actually at that college. So, all right. So then you, you ended up on the West Coast. Well, or, yeah. I moved to the West Coast. Yeah. It wasn't back. I grew up in New Jersey. Okay. What led um, to that, uh, that Taekwondo and Hapkido school? Was that, did you do a lot of research before that? It was at the first school you no, found. No, I wasn't did that you... smart. I just, uh... <laughs> just luck. <laughs> I'm not quite sure how it happened. I think uh, it must, you know, there must have been some friends training there. I mean, someone gave me Master Jung's name okay. to look at. I think it was someone I was working with at the time. But, um, you know, I had seen when I was in college, I'd seen the, the film Billy Jack. Uh-huh. It was, um, yes. you know, the choreography was all done by Bong Soo Han. Mm-hmm. You know, and actually he, he acted a lot of, did, did most of the scenes. And that made a big impression on me. That really seemed, you know, I remember thinking, oh, that seems like an art I would really like doing, you know, because it was eclectic and involved so many things. And I, you know, coming to California, you have opportunities to train in the martial arts that you just, as you know, you just don't have right. in, on the East Coast or, you know, the Midwest. Definitely. Uh, it all really started out here. And, you know, once I moved out here, I think, well, I want to, you know, that's, it was the opportunity to really delve in a serious way. So, and uh, at that time, Master Jung uh, was, um, it was a Taekwondo and a Hapkido program. And, you know, in Taekwondo, they, there was a lot of sport Taekwondo and they were, had a lot of national uh, champions and things like that. Later on, people that, you know, went to the Olympic training center and so forth. So, I think I remember the first time I saw him just moving on the mat. I just went to take a class. Just, oh, this guy's the real deal, you know, and uh, this is where I want to train. Okay. And probably a simple decision is that. And then it's like, you know, the more I trained, the more I loved it. I would go in there when the school opened at 3.34 o'clock every day and uh, train till it would close around 9.30, something like that, 10 o'clock. And the first part of that would be several hours of taekwondo, and uh, it was in those days it was full contact yep. uh, sport taekwondo. It's not like it is today, and uh, I, I had no desire to really compete at their level, but I really enjoyed working out with a lot of these, you know, young people who were you know national caliber athletes. Right. And I enjoyed the whole full contact thing. And then after I think I started around maybe six or seven o'clock, the school would transition to hapkido and. and uh, mostly adults or almost all adults and we would do that till it would close nice so did you do any tournaments at all i know you said it didn't really interest you but did you did you give it a try at all or just kind of just for yourself you know i just did it for myself nice and fighting rounds and uh, sparring there anyway so that there would have been nothing i would have done in the tournament that we weren't doing there other than of course meeting unfamiliar people right in that context but you know, there were so many good martial artists there back in the day. You know, <laughs> you got a you got a mouthful. <laughs> right, and I know we, we we always hear that you know the 
don't know if you call them the horror stories or not, but just how hardcore the classes were back then. Not even, not even just the sparring, just everything in general, the workouts just compared to nowadays. I know my, my instructor started training, I think in 79 or 80 and Taekwondo mm-hmm. also. And I've heard the stories about how they taught then. And even just compared to how they taught in the nineties to now, when I got into it, talk yeah, about no, you're <laughs> right. And it really had to, it had to change, I guess, but, uh, you know, I, I'm happy to have had that experience. I mean, I remember, you know, I'm remembering these things as we talk about them, mm-hmm. but uh, every Friday used to be, it was called fight night, but every Friday was sparring, full contact sparring. Okay. And, um, the, you know, that was it. And uh, gradually what started, you know, everybody would get banged up. Sometimes, a lot of times we had hoagies on, sometimes not. Most of the time we had hoagies on and head protection. But, um, you know, what would happen is, of course, you know, things would get out of control or two guys would, you know, have it in for each other to begin with. And they (laughs) would would break break out into some kind of, you know, fight that wasn't the fight supposed to be going on. And, you know, it had to cool people off and that kind of thing. But over the years, what kind of happened was people stopped coming, you know, and and it gets, you know, if I would come around there, you know, where there used to be packed with people, there'd be hardly any. Master John was like, okay, they'll, you know, you know, they'll come during the week, but they won't come on Friday. Okay, well, I'm going to fix that. I'm going to, I'm not going to do it on Fridays anymore. I'm just going to stick it in the week sometime and they don't know it. So they can't, you nice. know, can't avoid it. <laughs> That's awesome. And, uh, you know, he did that for a little bit and then, he, you know, he stopped doing it because, you know, and he said, I, I'm just losing students and people don't want to do it, you know, and uh, he says, I, you know, I, I, I guess I can understand that because sometimes they got to go to work, you know, they can't hold a pencil, <laughs> you know, because their fingers dislocated or whatever, or they're in pain throughout the day, you know, maybe that's not a good thing. So that kind of thing just started to disappear. And a lot of the kind of hard training you talked about, you know, sort of bizarre calisthenics that probably weren't necessarily healthy for the body. Right. All of that, you know, we, I just saw it disappear from the school over the years. Because people didn't want to do it. You know, so. Yep, exactly. And uh, I mean, I, I, I've tried to talk my instructor like, yeah, just, you know, once a month you should do like a, you know, a throwback, like eighties or nineties class and just see how many people would show up. He's like, you'd be the only one there. (laughs) Really? Yeah. It's probably right. Yeah. Well, it'd be fun. One-on-one training. So So then how long did you stay at that school? And then also, did you get into teaching at all while you were there? Yeah, I taught quite a bit while I was there. Um, Well, from the 1980s to. 2006 I was with him so I don't know 25 to 30 years and uh, there was a point uh, during the this was during the 90s I had my own classes mm-hmm. that he helped to try and send people to uh, you know Hopkido he's very supportive of that it was his first love his big love was Hopkido anyway and so most of the people that you know, have stayed with me to this day for, for decades, you know, came to me in those early years or, or later years, I should say, at uh, Korean Martial Arts Center. Okay. So how do you think your teaching style has changed over the years then? Thinking back to maybe that first class you taught or first one-on-one lesson you had to kind of nowadays or whatever, how do you think it's changed? Well, hopefully I'm more intelligent you know, <laughs> than maybe I was. I mean, I would think obviously I, I, I probably know a lot more, but in terms of the style of how I teach, I'm not sure it's all that uh, different. You know, I taught at university for a decade oh, in the okay. arts. Okay. So I had a fair amount of experience as a teacher. And 
teaching martial arts is obviously different, but it's not. I think in the end of at the end of the day, you try to you want to provide benefit to others, and I think it all begins and ends with there. And you just I just try to look at people individually and uh, figure out you know what's the best way to help them get where they want to where they want to go. Okay, and you know beyond that, it's just basically teaching a curriculum of techniques. If there's things they have problems with, you try and figure out ways to break it down. I remember one student that I had a long time ago, back in, you know, maybe in the early 90s, who was probably the most unathletically gifted person I've ever seen in my life in terms of just being able to to do things in bodily movements. And I said, you know, that was quite a challenge. But, you know, and a lot of martial arts is fairly complex movements. But the way I remember approaching it with him was to just keep breaking things down into the simplest, littlest pieces possible. And he got it, you know, and uh, eventually he obtained a, a black belt after many years. He was dedicated and he stuck with it. And, uh, you know, those kind of things where you help someone who seems unhelpable, those are actually the things I remember the most and probably have the greatest sense of you know, satisfaction or gratification for being able to participate in because the gifted athlete, you know, the cream of the crop is going to, is going to rise no matter what you do, even if you do the wrong things or teach the wrong wrong way, you know, they're, they're gifted. They're going to get there, but you know, it's what you can do for those that are, I think that's, uh, you know, very satisfying. And, uh, and you, you know, you learn a lot about teaching because you have to, you have to do different things for different people. You, you can't just have a blueprint. I, I don't think it, at least that's how I approach it. Right. That's great. I love that. So what led you to, or did, did you, I mean, what led you to, to Wally J? Is that someone, did you seek him out? Was he recommended? Had you heard about him before yeah, you started I, I training saw with him? I saw him out. I think people had talked about him. I didn't really know, you know, that Wally J was Wally J. I just heard this was, was a really great, you know, jujitsu, uh, judo, jujitsu practitioner over there in Alameda, you, you know, and a couple of friends I was training with, you should, you know, you should really check it out. And I did. And then I came to, you know, you do a little research and realized who he was and so forth. But uh, he was a very humble man, a very caring and uh, <laughs> nice teacher, I guess is what you could say. And, uh, you know, both of those teachers, if I hadn't met Wally J, it's, I probably never would have written a martial arts book or um oh wow or i pursued the career that i you know i don't know if you call it a career but a life in the i call it a life a life in the martial arts and a lot of that was just through the the example of his life you know and talking to him a lot about things a lot of times he would hang around after class was over and you know he would sit there and talk to whoever wanted to sit and talk to him for you know for an hour or so and um and this is, you know, nine, 10 o'clock at night. He was very enthusiastic. But, he, I, you know, to get back to the example of his life, you know, a lot of the things that he had to deal with in terms of criticisms and this and that and how he prevailed, a lot of his ideas really, I would say, it both inspired me, but it also gave me the confidence to believe in things I already believed in and really uh, pursue them and go after them. Both of them, both he and Master Jung were, also teachers that really they were not dogmatic at all they were both 
very innovative or looking to innovate constantly. And they were both uh, very encouraging of a person in developing, you know, an individual approach to the martial artists, I mean, to the martial arts in terms of style and technique once they were already black belts. Mm -hmm. So, and the thing about Wally J too was a, a lot of what he taught and how he taught was applicable to almost any martial art. And, and he really helped me to perceive and, and see that the common threads that run through, you know, all martial arts. I mean, the body is, human bodies are all the same. Joints bend and break in the same ways. Yeah. You know, body mechanics are fundamentally uh, the same. There's just different choices about maybe how to, how to go about applying techniques or, you know, execute kicks and things like that. But there's a commonality that runs through all of them. And, you know, he was one of the people that helped me to, or provoked me to sort of look deeper and understand that. Wow. I never had the opportunity to meet him, you know, read, you know, read a lot about him over the years and stuff. And so now obviously most people, they hear the term jujitsu and their mind automatically goes to Brazilian jujitsu mainly because of, you know, the, mm -hmm. the UFC and the popularity. So if you, if you had to try to explain to someone the difference between Brazilian jujitsu and small circle jujitsu that you learned from Molly J, is, is there something, what are some of the standout things that do uh, you know much about Brazilian jujitsu and, and what the differences are? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I do. I mean, I'm not a Brazilian jiu-jitsu practitioner, so, right. you know, anything I say, you know, they'll probably say, no, nah, that's not quite true. <laughs> and they're probably right, you know, but I remember back when the first UFC thing was happening, I remember Wally J, we were sitting around talking, and he was saying, uh, we were talking about this exact thing, mm -hmm. and he said, yeah, he goes, I call Helio, uh, I think it was Helio Gracie, he's like the 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 great grandpa. Yes, correct. Yep. Yeah, he he called me the other day and uh you know he was he was we were talking and he was saying, Wally, what what's the difference between your jujitsu and my jujitsu? And uh, he said, I said, I don't think there's any difference. Because you do the same things I do. <laughs> <You know? laughs> wow. And that's what I would say basically. Okay. I don't know that there is a difference. I mean the Brazilians really spend a lot of time refining their art in the context of actual of fighting, full contact fighting. Right. And when I look at it, you know, I see they do little things differently, but those little things have a huge, huge difference. A lot of that, at least what I saw in the day when I used to look at a lot of this stuff, you know, was directly a result of, you know, the context of trying to do something, you know, you're on the bottom and you're trying to, shift to a reclining arm bar and the guy's trying to pummel you from the top. Well, kind of the basic traditional entry, not so good because you're uncovered, you know, you're uncovering your face, mm -hmm. whereas they would tend to kind of maneuver, obtain a grip, you know, really try and work that grip in hard while they're protecting and then make a move, you know, things like that. And um, so I think there's small differences. I don't know if it's true anymore, but in the day they didn't do a lot of throwing and, um, I know some of them used to show up when I was talking to yeah, Willie Cahill was another, you know, judo practitioner in the, in the Bay Area Olympic coach. And uh, I remember him telling me that, um, yeah, that they would sometimes show up to watch the throwing, some of the Brazilians in this in the Bay Area, but they never wanted to get out on the mat. You know, he would always invite them out on the mat, but they didn't want to do that, probably because, you, you know, most of the people there were Olympic judoists and they're pretty, you know, 
no matter how good you are, they're pretty good at throwing you. Right. So, and the Brazilians at that time had a fairly limited throwing repertoire. They would do a try and maneuver in for a hip throw and, and certain other kinds of things, but try and get to the ground. And I don't know if that's true anymore. They, they could have, you know, really expanded in into the throwing arts, but small circle jujitsu had, you know, a lot of throwing arts okay. um, that I didn't see early on in, in the Brazilian thing, which is, is not a criticism to say one's better yeah. than the other. It's just, it's just different. a difference. Yep. Okay. And you had mentioned, you, you said you probably wouldn't have written your first book uh, if you hadn't met him, met Wally J. So what, what led to that? What led to you becoming an author? Well, you know, ever since I started training with Master Jung, you know, every night it was something different that he would do. You know, he was just, he didn't follow a curriculum per se, or maybe he sort of did in his head, but he also just would teach whatever he wanted to teach, like, like a lot of people in that day. And, you know, there was no book on hot keto. There was nothing, you know, comprehensive you could look at to try and remember any of this stuff. So I started, I had a, a notebook and every night after class, I'd, I'd, I'd write down whatever it was we did. I think I was riding mass transit at the time. It was like a 40 minute trip. I would just try and write down everything that happened and try, you know, try to remember it or, and, and classify it. So, I, you know, after quite a few years, this, you know, it was like a two inch, you know, notebook of just handwritten notes and things like that so that was sort of the start of it and i don't know i think you know at some point i guess in the 90s i, I know i had a general dissatisfaction with the state of martial arts literature that, as it existed at the time i was really dissatisfied that there was nothing out there on hot keto it was completely an or pretty much an oral tradition at that point and there were a few things out there but they were mostly very brief, you know, uh, and it's an art that consists of around 2000 core techniques and, you know, piles of variations on top of that. So I suppose that's, you know, I just wanted to, I thought I could do something that would provide an immense benefit to others that would also allow me to coalesce and make use of all these life skills that I had outside of the martial arts in a way that would be uniquely me it was something i could do that that other martial artists couldn't not because they didn't have training or skills or knowledge and all they had all of there's there's plenty of you know profound people out there but i had these skills and as a designer as a professional designer how to take complex amounts of information and organize it and uh you know put it in a in a published form i designed books i was you know, worked as a designer for numerous Fortune 500 companies, you know, designing complex corporate identity and branding programs and all this. And here was martial arts, something that I actually loved that I could put my professional skills to use that in, in, in a unique way. I mean, really not that different than what you're doing with your podcast. You're, mm -hmm. you're a professional sound engineer and that's finding an outlet in your um, doing these interviews and podcasts, right? True. Yeah, definitely. Years ago, I, I wanted to write a book. I actually like took me, you know, creative writing classes and stuff. And I know for a, a high school assignment one time, I actually wrote a 120 some page story and I was like, oh, I'm going to write a book. And of course, I never actually <laughs> had the patience to sit down mm -hmm. and do a real book. So I don't know. Well, I've already done a lot of writing professionally before that. So not as a writer right. like in terms of fiction or whatever, but in terms of my job as a designer. So but there was a big learning process in, in, in writing the book. And, 
for some crazy reason, you know, I, I picked the largest book to do first. I never meant it to be that large. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I thought I'd get through with the whole thing in a year and move back to my life. But as I kept going in, it seemed to keep growing and expanding. And, uh, right. and it eventually pretty much took over my life. I mean, there was a point where for several years I was sleeping about four hours a night, just trying to plow through and get it done. Wow. And your health suffers for that. Your friendships suffer for that. Your career certainly suffers for that. But, uh, yeah, I was, anyway. re- I was, de- I was reading before we started talking, I was reading about the, the, the big Taekwondo one for sure. Just cause that's my, my course style is traditional Taekwondo one. And just reading about that, and it looks like an amazing book. I might actually be ordering that one. That, uh, yeah, I mean, that one happened much more quickly. That is probably a year or two. Okay, just full of information. I mean, I I love what it has in it, and and I love it's it's rare to find one that actually has the uh, the Palgay forms because that's the ones we do. We've Mm -hmm. always done those. You're studying Taekwondo. Yes, correct. Yeah, and that also has a huge section on Olympic style, Taekwondo, and that's full contact Olympic style, you know, back when it was something you'd want to do and something you'd want to watch. Oh, (laughs) definitely. It's it's really kind of changed. When they actually knew how to punch back then. (laughs) Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, you didn't get a lot of points for it, but but it was a full contact sport. You know, as you probably know, that's really changed in recent years. It's become kind of a strange... um, some kind of a strange aberration of point fighting, I guess is what you'd say. You know, it's, it's a lot of little taps and things like that. And uh, They're trying yeah. to bring some of that back. One of my previous guests is, is a you know, top uh, referee and stuff and, and expert on Olympic Taekwondo. And he said, they're actually trying to bring some of that back and they're trying to bring punching back into it. And he, he said that uh, it'll look a lot different at the next Olympics. So it'll be mm-hmm. interesting, interesting to see if uh-huh. that actually happens. Who's that? Editor in chief of Taekwondo Life magazine, oh, Mark okay. uh, Zero Giannis is his name. Mm-hmm. In my opinion, they never should have taken that stuff out. I mean, agreed. Uh, I mean, I get why they did it. I mean, a lot of it had to do with you know the, the judging was really biased, yes, and yes. not always highly competent. So you know they tried to bring in electronic scoring as a way to level the field, but you know the end result was that basically what happened was all you had to do was touch a target. So it turned into like, you know, just little tappy and flicky <laughs> sorts of action and movements. You know, there was a requirement back in the day. It had to be a quote unquote trembling blow right. that went out the window. There was no point advantage to head kicks or anything like that. I think that was taken away. So, you know, competitors are ultimately going to do whatever it takes to win. Right. So, and that's always has to, you know, happen within the, the framework of the rules. So if, you know, whatever they, you know, the fact that it's evolved into this is clearly a result of the rules and how it's scored and points and everything else. And I think it's a real shame because I, I had heard at some point it was in jeopardy of being pulled from the Olympics. I don't know if that would ever happen, but if you were to look at the last Olympics or maybe the last few, I don't watch these things too much anymore but and compare that with um you know the fighting in the 1990s up to around 2000 mm-hmm. i mean you see something markedly different like yeah, um, definitely in one of the um uh, i can't remember his name but in the bay area there was um well, several olympians but herb uh, oh herb perez, herb perez. yeah, yeah herb perez. One, one of my first guests I, on the show actually yeah he's yep. been pretty i think he's still pretty active in taekwondo yep. at the governing level and 
you know, I hear he's been pretty outspoken about it and Very. rightfully so. And, yep. you know, perhaps people like that will bring about change, you know, or, or move it backwards, you know, not backwards, but back into a sport that's at least more, you know, more martial and uh, I think has much greater you know, visual appeal to spectators. Too. Right. Yeah. Uh, that's my two cents about it. And all the tournaments we do, you know, it is, you know, the WTF Taekwondo style sparring, but it's more of the traditional style of it. It's, it's, it's like you come to one of our tournaments and it's not what you see in the Olympics. It's, you know, it still mm-hmm. has pretty hardcore. You have, you know, solid hits. We have, you know, people score with punches. You know, they actually don't, they don't have their hands just they, hanging down at know, their side. Maybe so Maybe there's still a lot of that happening. Hopefully, uh, hopefully, yeah. hopefully, yeah. Nice. And I'll definitely put links out there for all your books and everything, and, and so people can see that in the show notes and stuff. So some great books. Well, out it's there. sort of interesting because a few years ago, you know, there's this opinion that sort of out there or was anyway that oh, ITF is disappearing or this or that. But I, uh, maybe it's five, eight years ago, I put out a you know separate book on the ITF forms. Mm-hmm. Uh, as they existed at the time that General Choi died, which was, you know, the final incarnation, I guess. And that book sold surprisingly well. I mean, it outstripped a lot of my other books, which was really surprising because one thought, oh, no one's doing that anymore. They want to do WTF forms or whatever, but clearly not the case. So I think, you know, the ITF stuff must be alive and well out there. And, uh, well, that's yeah, good. perhaps more than people think. Yeah, I think a lot of it's more than people think. So I mean, they they see the Olympics and think that's you know epitome of everything, yeah. and that's what they're going. But it's not true. A lot of the smaller schools right. aren't doing that, and the ones that are actually keeping it alive. So well, I think that I think that's true. I think there's a lot of schools and people out there that just are quietly going about doing their thing and doing what they've always done, and some of them doing it really well, and. uh you know, the things you might see on a YouTuber that are more visible, to, you know, on social media. Are, sometimes those, those are just the people who are either self-promoters or better at self-promotion. And I think a lot of martial artists probably aren't. And uh, so, you know, in a way, it's hard to know exactly what's going on, right? Exactly. So what advice would you give someone who has never done martial arts before and they're thinking of getting involved? They're just kind of wondering what are some things they should look for and maybe some things they should avoid in looking for a school or an instructor? Well, I think it's really hard, but I think you have to trust your own feelings and opinions. And, you know, I get letters from sometimes from people like that asking that question about um, oftentimes in respect to Hapkido, they don't have a, you know, a school where they are and things like that, you know, or how to decide. I think you have to go, I mean, you try and do your research, you know, online or whatever, see what other people are thinking. But I think ultimately you got to go visit a school, sit there and, and watch a class or two. And is do you like what you see going on? Uh, do the people practicing there look happy? Does the art appeal to you when you see it being practiced? Does the teacher seem like someone that you could learn something from and you'd, and you'd want to be around? You know, the hard part is, of course, you don't. You're trying to make about a judgment about something you don't really know anything about. Right. But my advice is always to trust your gut feeling about it, and you know, try a class if that's done. But but don't get involved in a long contract. If someone wants to sign you up for years or whatever, just have an exit strategy. So if you take four or five classes and you find you don't like it for whatever reason, maybe you don't like the teacher, maybe you don't like people you're with, maybe you don't like the art. 
or it's just not what you thought it should be. So, you know, leave and, and, and then try something else. Uh, th- I mean, that would be basically my advice. That's uh, great advice. But don't leave too fast either. Right. You know? right. You know, give it long enough to be, you know, to be sure. And I think the other thing is that's important is that the school's teaching martial arts values as well as combative skills, you know, that all that's fused together. And, and any, you know, true martial arts schools that is going to, of course, do that. I think that's important. Okay, great answer. So I know we talked touched a little bit on, on, on the UFC, you know, talking about like Wally J and stuff, but no, so what are your thoughts, you know, as a traditional martial artist, what are your thoughts on MMA and the UFC and are you a fan? You know, I think it's great. I don't watch it anymore. Okay. Uh, because I'm just not that, I don't watch many professional sports at all anymore. I'm just not that interested. I have, you know, time constraints and I just like to get out and do things rather than watch them. You know, back in the beginning, I remember we were all very interested, you know, in the, you know, I don't know, the first five or seven of them or whatever, all interested. Everybody was interested to see what would happen, you know, and all these styles came together, you know, would one be better than the other, or what would happen and, and that kind of thing. And I, you know, I think in the early years, it was, you know, it started off as kind of a circus. There were, you know, uh, there were people that were tapping out in the New York minute, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, uh, and people were making, I think early on, we were making all sorts of, uh, presumptions about, oh, well, that's the best style, you know, and, and you know, this kind of doing this kind of tech, you know, doing that kind of technique is useless and this is the way to go. Mm-hmm. And that would hold, you know, that would last until the next guy would come along in a different art and he would beat everybody. Then everybody would go running. Oh, that's, that's what we got to do. That's the art. You know, I think what eventually happened over the year, you know, like in the beginning, you know, it was ground fighting, but then some, you know, some people would, you know, and kicking was uh, considered a useless endeavor, but you know, then later on, you, you know, there, uh, I forget the guy's name, Andy Worthy. Does that sound right? I don't know, but it was a guy who had a spin kick and he started knocking people out. And, uh, because, you know, he was pretty good at it. Mm -hmm. I mean, by the standards of Hapkido and Taekwondo, we would have thought, eh, it's a pretty slow spin kick. When you look at it, it's like, you know, you wouldn't hit anybody because they'd see it coming. But the, you know, the people in that, uh, arena and that context didn't have experience with it. So it worked and he was, you know, he did it well enough so i think at the end of the day you know everybody began to realize it's not really the style it's the fighter you know it's the best fighter that wins and you know now they try and i I guess uh, you know at a point they all started to try and embrace all the skills but i haven't seen it in decades so you know i don't really have any kind of a a useful or intelligent opinion about it Um, so who are some names that you would put on your personal mount rushmore of martial arts (laughs) <laughs> i don't know that's a, that's a good just, question just some that you just really you really admire whether it's people you actually know and met and trained with you know like someone like a wally, um, wally J or just well, someone like I a bruce lee or something I trained with, but that was just my personal experience mm-hmm. with people that i happened to personally choose i mean i was very fortunate in that you know california was rich in talent and right. the choices i made were very beneficial for me and that's just you know some of that's luck but you know, I don't have heroes per se, but I will say that I admire, I greatly admire anyone who's dedicated their lives to the martial arts and has endured in that, has stuck it out because, you know, there's a, a million reasons to quit and very few to stay. So the people that have, 
had long, you know, spent a long time in the martial arts, continually trained. I really have a great deal of respect for anyone who, you know, conforms to that definition. Okay. Um, I mean, beyond that, if I was pick some people, I think that, you know, some of the people that have made great contributions are those that, you know, like Jigoro Kano, who, yep. you know, made the transition from a highly combative art of jiu-jitsu into something that could be practiced safely and, you know, in an educational system by millions of people. I mean, talking about judo, I think, um, you know, Morihai Ishiba created a very unique martial art in Aikido that's benefited enormous amounts of people who, you know, want to do that type of thing. So people like that, I mean, I'm, I'm sure I'm leaving out, you know, many people who uh, could uh, belong on Mount Rushmore. Hey, that's a, but that's a that, great answer. That's though. what I can think of. That's what I can think of at the moment. Okay, cool. So throughout your, you know, 40 plus years in, in traditional martial arts, is there one philosophy you've learned that just rises to the top, one that's really important to you, you keep coming back to? Well, I think, you know, it kind of evolves over the years. Uh, at this point, I mean, I the thing I teach and talk about is that Hapkido or any martial art has basically six, what I would say, six ultimate objectives. If it's truly a martial art, not just a, a sport, you know, call it fundamental underpinnings. And I would say the first is, would be the harmonization of body, mind, and spirit. Second objective would be the perfection of human character. The third would be development of social responsibility. Fourth would be the integration of instantaneous correct action in all aspects of life. Uh, the fifth would be the cultivation of indomitable spirit. And the sixth would be the recognition of one's inherent place in the immortal universe. Um, obviously, martial arts is training, in, and the way in which we do that as martial arts is, of course, we train in physical techniques, combative arts. Mm -hmm. But I think those are really the ultimate underlying objectives of fighting and sparring in the context of martial arts. I love for that. me, anyway. That's that's how I. No, that's great. I articulate love it. Great answer. All right, so we got a few fun ones to wrap it up. Now, this one, you, you can't pick one of your own, obviously, but uh, favorite martial arts book? You know, I'm, as a person, I don't really have favorites of okay. things, but when I think of some of the, I guess, the martial arts books that were important or important to me, uh, there were a lot of them that were overseas. Like, I remember there were, in years ago, there were some very good judo books coming out of Japan that were beautifully printed and produced, very comprehensive. I don't remember the, the names of them. Uh, I remember Master Jung having some of these things, okay. uh, which is why I encountered them. You know, there were some early pamphlets that came out of Korea and Hapkido that were important because they gave us a little glimpse of, of something. Um, but as important as martial arts books, I don't know. I think some of the Aikido books that have been done over the years are done to a higher level of production and editorial standards have been, you know, pretty good. I think actually there's a lot of judo books that were that are fairly detailed. There hasn't General Choi wrote a book on Taekwondo. Yep. It's like seven or eight hundred pages, I think. Yes, correct. Uh, so I mean I think that was important to Taekwondo, at least the ITF style, because it it was there and in print. I can't think of too much else in the Taekwondo department. Richard Kim had a book in the seventies that um you know, gave everybody a look at Taekwondo, what was going on. But other than that, you know, the problem with publishing is the publishers, not necessarily the martial artists, 
because there was a there's a belief that oh you, you can't sell a book that's over cost more than ten or fifteen dollars. Mm-hmm. So a lot of these publishers that were doing martial arts books in the United States would produce very small kind of rattly printed uh, books, mm-hmm. you know, that didn't really serve to do justice to the you know to those martial arts. But and I think that was a, a false assumption, which is borne out by a lot of some of the stuff Weatherhill published and. Well, in my books, because, you know, they're not cheaply produced, they're uh, rather expensive, but, uh, you know, and it's in Weatherhill's heyday, or uh, in the first few years those books were published, they were, uh, this is a publisher that publishes all sorts of stuff on Asia, you know, East Asian culture and martial arts, were 22% of their earnings. So that kind of flipped that whole notion. And I would hope that publishers would get more brave about, publishing quality martial arts books. Unfortunately, it's not a time, it's not a good time these days for books because things are moving in towards digital content. And I think the amount of people reading books is probably less than it was 20 years ago. Not sure about that, but which is sad that, you know, that's kind of my thought. So, you know, so there's been a a great contraction in the publishing industry, but that's kind of a a long winded answer to your question, I guess. That's a good good answer though. All right. So now you said you don't really have favorites, so that might put a damper on our final two questions, but do you have a favorite martial arts TV show? Uh, I don't watch much TV anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the Kung Fu TV show was, um, was influential to me. Now, probably if you went back and looked at it today, it's, you know, it's probably not really all that great as the art of filmmaking goes. No. But, it, you know, it, I think anything anything out there in the, that creates a positive impression of the martial arts in its totality, that is, as a way of life, as a, you know, philosophical underpinnings to a combative art, I think is, you know, if it does that, I think it's, it's beneficial. You know, I, I watch... Um, I went to school for art and design, photography, mm-hmm. studied film. So I've always had a love of um, filmmaking and movies okay. and uh, probably watch more of that kind of stuff than television. Okay. So have you watched the the newer show, The Warrior, at all? Have you seen that one? No, I haven't. Is that a movie or on television? You might enjoy Yeah, it's a television show. You might enjoy it because it's actually – what Kung Fu was supposed to be because, you know, it was Bruce Lee's ideas and stuff. And mm-hmm. it's actually, they, Shannon Lee helped create this TV show from Bruce Lee's notes on what Kung mm-hmm. Fu was supposed to be. So it's, it's, you might enjoy it. It's mm-hmm. actually really good. <laughs> mm-hmm. But now final question, this one that might, might have a better answer for favorite martial arts movie. Well, I don't know if I have a better answer. I, <laughs> you know, I can't remember anything. I can't remember what I ate for lunch yesterday. So, I mean, you know, it's sort of the same thing, but I mean, over the years, I, I mean, I've always admired Kurosawa's films oh, you know, because they're, yes. they're great films. Um, and, some, and some of them are deal with various aspects of martial martial arts, martiality. You know, the, uh, I forget the name of it, Crouching Tiger or something oh, hidden, or other. Hidden Dragon, yep. Gently. Yeah, that was, uh, I thought that was a wonderful film. Yes. And, you know, if it has martial arts in it, all the more, you know, all the more enjoyable. You know, the Billy Jack films were important to Hapkido because it gave Hapkido a public face. I don't know that it's great filmmaking per se. I enjoyed the Kill Bill movies. And again, I don't know if that was, you know, an exceptional display of martial arts per se, but, you know, they're great great films. And, uh, you know, the funny thing is when you look at 
some of the older films that have martial arts in them, the things that are done today, you know, and uh, over the years, you really see, uh, to me, you see a real evolution in the level of choreography. It's much more sort of interesting and, you know, sort of realistic than what was done before. And, you know, filmmaking is a funny thing because you could do real martial arts and kind of film it, but it probably wouldn't look as good or create the same impression as, you know, choreographed things that ultimately create. I mean, a great to me, a great martial arts film is one that creates or a great film period that creates you know, one of the things that Crouching Tiger did was it raised the idea of the martial arts to the level of legend, you know, or right. mythology or, you know, something like that. And I think that uh, some really interesting martial arts sequences in films these days are actually being done by actors who aren't really even martial artists. And, you know, that's because whoever's doing the choreography is doing a really good job. I think modern filmmaking techniques allow you to now, you know, take someone, you know, like that student I talked about earlier who had no physical skills and you just break it down into pieces. You know, and if an actor has some athletic ability, you teach them the moves in pieces. It may be a complex scene of fighting, but it's all shot and done in pieces and then put together. And if you do that, it can look pretty good. And I, I think that's what they're doing today. Okay. Nice. Great answer. So, well, anything else you want, you want to mention that I, maybe I forgot to ask about, or forgot to cover before, before we wrap it up, I, like I said, I'll, I'll put links out there for, for your, your books and everything. And I'll put links out there for your, your Hapkido website. Anything else we want to, to mention quickly? No, I don't, I don't think so. Okay. But, uh, I just, I don't, yeah. I, I just want to thank you, Mark. This has been a lot of fun. I, I, like I said, I knew very little about you before the interview and stuff and uh, amazing martial arts career. I, I didn't realize you had uh, trained with Wally J, which is cool. Someone I've always looked up to in the martial arts and, and I know I had actually put a, put a request out to his son for an interview. So I'm hoping to hear back from him. Uh, he'd be a fun one to have on the podcast too, but I really enjoyed your, your storytelling and, and, and chatting with you. And, and uh, I, I really appreciate your time. Well, thank you. It's been uh, it's been a pleasure talking with you, and thanks for having me on. It's uh, nothing I'd rather do than talk about the martial arts all day. <laughs> <laughs> I, know, I know I could do this all day too. It's so much fun. <laughs> thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist. We hope you will join us every week for a brand new episode with a different martial artist telling their story. If you enjoy the show, be sure to leave us a review. Also, be sure to check out our website at everydaymartialartist.com. There you can find all of our episodes and contact us to suggest guests and ask questions. Again, thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist, and we'll see you next week.